Good morning and welcome to Copper Country Today, Houghton Community Broadcasting's weekly look at the issues and people that are important to the Keweenaw. This morning, we meet the UP's new poet laureate, M. Bartley Siegel, and has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the status of high school foreign exchange students? Grant DeSetto talks with Lauren Schur from International Cultural Exchange Services. I'm Todd Van Dyke. Stand by for Copper Country Today, brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. Portage Health Foundation is proud to announce it has more than 40 scholarships available. This includes opportunities for students in any major attending any training facility, college, or university. There are three designated scholarships for every public high school in Barraga, Houghton, Keweenaw, and Onsonagan counties, including a general health careers and skilled trade scholarship. The deadline to apply is March 19th. Learn more and download an application at phfgive.org scholarships. Again, phfgive.org scholarships. The deadline is March 19th. Welcome to Copper Country Today. I'm Todd Van Dyke. Part one of our show's weekly program edition is brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. With scholarships numbering more than 29, just visit phfgive.org online. You may wonder why I am talking in rhyme. I'm speaking in verse because now it is time to welcome a youper who's just made his story at Michigan Tech, our new poet laureate. For the Upper Peninsula, all nice and legal, a very fine writer, he's M. Bartley Siegel. Matt, welcome to the program. That was an excellent, excellent poem. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, I've learned one thing already in this show, and that is, is that it is really difficult to find a legitimate rhyme for the word laureate. (laughs) <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's true. You have to. You have to. It's proletariat or or, or commissariat or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we had to stretch that a little bit there. So, uh, but but welcome to the show and congratulations on being named the UP's poet laureate. Thank you very much. What the heck is a UP poet laureate? I know that we've had them in the past. Is this something that is uh, very prestigious and has a big salary that comes with it? <laughs> prestige prestige maybe in a in a certain sense salary definitely no it's 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 mostly an honorary position um we've had a up poet laureate now since 2013 uh it was uh put together by a commission of regional libraries and and writing and literature teachers and books bookshop owners and and uh um Run by a, a, a youper by the name of Ron Riki, uh, who's a fellow writer and poet and, and editor and publisher, and and we've had uh, I'm the fourth now UP poet laureate, um, Russell Thorburn, uh, Andrea Scarpino, and Marty Ackett's, uh preceded me as UP poet laureate. So, how did you get into the running for this? Is it something that just kind of snuck up on you, or is it something that you actually had to apply for? Uh, it's you're nominated. Uh, their committee uh, sort of scours the land to find out, you know, who the who the working publishing poets are uh, in the UP uh, or from the UP. And I've been in the running for it uh, previously, and so uh, uh, some some someone somewhere uh, threw my hat into or threw my name into the hat. Uh, this year, and and there's a there's a voting process, and then a, a vetting process, and uh, through it all, I I was I was named the new new people at laureate. So it it came as it came as a little bit of a surprise, and it certainly is a you know was a was a very um, very nice and, and and humbling honor to receive. Now, does this carry with it a huge social schedule for the next year or two? You know, it's really kind of up to the individual poet laureate to decide kind of what they want to do with the position. Some poet laureates um, just just you know remain poets and they they focus on their own writing and their their publishing. Um, others take on a, a more kind of educational or community outreach role. Uh, I'm still kind of trying to decide you know what I would like to do with my two years as as UP poet laureate. Um, but you know, I've got some readings coming up in April, which is National Poetry Month, and I've just submitted an application um, for a grant from the American, that's uh, uh, for the Academy of American Poets, uh, to fund a UP Youth Poetry Program, which would allow me to um, 
offer some creative writing workshops in our state public and tribal high schools in collaboration with regional writing teachers. So that's kind of where I'm looking uh, for the next next six months to a year, and uh, and we'll see kind of what uh, what manifests. Talking with them, Bartley Siegel. He is the newly named UP Poet Laureate, and for the record, he is also Associate Professor of Creative Writing and Literature and Director of the Michigan Tech Multi <coughs> Multi Literacies Center. What is a Multi Literacies Center? It's it's the university's writing center. So we're a learning center that specializes in helping students with their their written and, and oral communication. Because, like most poets in this day and age, you need a day job. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, poets historically have always sort of had to latch themselves onto kings and queens or institutions so that they could uh, put some meat on the table. And I'm, I'm, no, I'm no exception. Yeah, poetry is, I have to say, and, and as a writer myself, it's at a bit of a low ebb at this point, at least in terms of what we traditionally think of as poetry. Because on the other hand, I work with poetry all day long. I play music. Music lyrics are poetry. Absolutely. But the spoken word that uh, you are dedicated to, that's it kind of, has been kind of at a low ebb for quite a while now. Yeah. You know, poetry has never been... Um you know, historically has never been the, the sort of the, the American idiom. I'm, we've, we've gravitated as a culture towards, I think, sort of other, other forms of expression, but it's always been there. I mean, poetry has always um, been with us, you know, since the, since the very beginning. And, and it's still a vital art form, uh, both in our, our, our society and, and around the world. And it, and it shows no real sign of, of really, um, of going anywhere, you know, in good times and bad, you know, poetry helps people get by. And even though it doesn't enjoy a lot of the limelight, a lot of the time it's, it's always kind of percolating, percolating under the surface. And, and, um, I think most people, most people are, um, more indebted to poetry than maybe they, they realize. And we're in this great moment right now, right. With, um, you got Joy Harjo as, as the, the poet laureate of the United States, and we've got Amanda Gorman um, as the youth poet laureate of the U.S. and 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 boy, I think um, any any day where you've got a poet reading a poem in the in the preamble to the Super Bowl, uh, there's got to be something good going on in the art form. Talk to me about this young Amanda Gorman. She's what, 22, 23 years old. Yeah. She has yeah. really made a splash. She was at the inauguration. She was at the Super Bowl. This has kind of put the art form back in center spotlight. It really has. I mean, she's, she's such an amazing, inspiring uh, young poet. And, and she's bringing a, a brand of poetry um, to the national stage that I think, you know, a lot of Americans probably aren't, aren't super familiar with. And, and she's just, she's, she's such an exciting voice and I'm, I'm just so, I'm so thrilled for her and, and, uh, and happy to be, uh, in, in some way, in some small way, you know, happy to be able to kind of follow in her, in her wake and, and see, see what it is that she does. She certainly has been a breath of fresh air. Her poetry tends to be very topical. It's very timely. It's uh, very socially oriented. Uh, she's yep, using it to make... socially conscious. Yeah, she's using it to make a statement, isn't she? Absolutely, yeah. It, there's, there's such a wide range of things that you can do with poetry. I mentioned songwriting a few minutes ago. Hers, uh, I think back to some of the beat poets back in, uh, in, in New York City back in the late 50s, 1960s, mm -hmm. uh, the Bob Dylan that came out of that group, they used that for social consciousness to promote social movement. Other people use it for humor. Other people use it for just the uh, beauty of the, the language. Where do you fall on that, on that spectrum? Well, you know, I mean, poetry in, in a, in a kind of reductive way is, is, is really just, you know, it's, it's the sound of the human voice. It's, it's, it's our bird song. And, and so there are as, there are as many forms of poetry and, and, and modes of expression as there are, as there are human voices. Um, and so it, it does lend itself to a, an incredible, an incredibly diverse array of, of forms and, and modes and genres. And, 
you know, I'm, I'm primarily a, a, a page based poet. Um, you know, I, I do perform my poetry, but, but I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be considered to be like a spoken word poet, uh, in the way that, that Ms. Gorman is. Um, and I deal primarily with, uh, with place-based, uh, poetics. I write a lot about the, about the UP. I write a lot about nature. I write a lot about the intersection of nature with, um, kind of human society. And, and as such, uh, you know, topical, timely, uh, things tend to, tend to creep in around the edges, um, of my, of my poems. As I was learning poetry, and I'm very old, so this goes back quite a number of years, but as I was learning poetry years ago, that whole variety was in front of me. I loved Robert Frost. I loved mm-hmm. Carl Sandburg. They were kind of the traditional great American poets when I was in my formative years. And on the other hand, my big hero is Ogden Nash, who is irreverent yeah. and as funny as can be. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it's something that people can really use for a variety of purposes. Um, do you have something that you could read for us, something that you have written? I do, yeah. I have, uh, I have two poems uh, that I can read for you today if we have the time. We do. All right. The first poem I will share with you uh, is what's kind of uh, loosely uh, thought of as a Fibonacci poem. Uh, which should amuse my STEM friends. Um, so the lines uh, of the poem follow a syllable count that mirrors the, the Fibonacci number sequence. Um, so in this poem, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, and 34. Um, it's a nature poem, and it's about uh, spinning out into the cosmic. You know, so the golden ratio makes a makes a kind of esoteric sense and and this one goes out to the the daughters of dynamite hill farm uh down in in Lance who caught their first wabus this winter and are a couple of proud providers and it's called um it's called rabbit snares all right small hands taught well to set snares carefully along the path rabbit as a person of ceremony just like you and me Movable, this feast under a blazing Milky Way. When he trips the noose, his reciprocity opens a small hole in space-time through which a murmuration of ancestors pour. Their words are gratitude in whatever language they speak. And then uh, the second poem I have for you is uh, two linked open sonnets or, or blank verse and it's a, it's a love poem to the UP in a way uh, appropriate this week after, after Valentine's Day. And, <laughs> and it's a love poem to sauna, uh, more specifically, and, and to my wife, most importantly at all, uh, of all. And it's called um, Birch Oil Smoke Pine Tar Switch. And this one's for Marika. All right. Sweat beads above her trapezius scar, coalescing to rivulette down her torso, past the mole I've claimed my own, stone amid the gathering rush. She reaches for the pine bucket of water, Mother Superior in her dipping spoon, then quick wrist flick at the rocks atop the stove, white hiss of steam, mushrooming, rising up to the low ceiling before circling round, settling like nettles along the low bench. Cedar-walled, lost in cloud bank, each of us a gathering, wordless storm. We do drop and breach in long, arcing inhalations of lung and heart, time and memory. Slow now, patience, stamina, suffering, change. Another time, shore and sauna, she slipped on wet tile, and fell atop a wood stove, searing metal, branding deep into her a burn so bad she did not even hurt, leaving her the scar, shaped like Michigan's Upper Peninsula, an omen, this day, this afternoon, our 10,000 secrets between us, reflections mirrored perfect in the ice-cold blue of the lake outside, 
as close as I'll come to church. Birch oil, smoke, pine tar, switch, ritual cycle of fire and sweet water. As close as I'll come to God, her body, gold, red maple leaves falling. That is wonderful. That's the end of that one. That, that is wonderful. You. It's very personal. Is it difficult sharing something that personal publicly? It can be. Uh, it, it certainly can be. You know, I've, I'm, I'm like, like every other human being walking the planet. I've had my, I'd had my shares of lows and, and I, and I write out of those spaces. You know, I've, I've written about addiction and I've, I've written about grief and loss and, and it is, it is hard um, sometimes to say the thing that, that needs to be said, but it's, it's, it's part of the challenge and, and part of the responsibility of, of being a, a, you know, a working poet who, who wants to, who, you know, wants to apply this, this craft out in the world. Because you really do expose a great deal of yourself with a poem like that. Yeah, yeah, you, uh, you, you, you really, you, you, um, you lay your, you lay your heart open on the page sometimes in poetry, and it can, it can take a lot of, um, it can take a lot of bravery. Yeah, and I will confess that I've always ch- had uh, trouble with that. I've, I've written personal poetry over the years, but nobody ever sees it. It's just therapeutic for me. Nobody ever, I, I would never publish it. I don't think I could. Well, and there's so many poets out there who who are working in that capacity, and and what a what a wonderful art form to fall back on for self expression and for, you know, for 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 personal self talk and 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 you know, tucking those poems away in a shoebox under your bed. That's a that's a that's an okay thing to do with poetry too. <laughs> they don't all have to land in a journal or a, or an anthology. <laughs> yeah, I had a college professor who chided me about that once. He said uh, uh, he apparently thought that we were all in the class so that we were going to become commercial poets and I guess write greeting cards or or, or something <laughs> like that. And he said your, your right. he said your work is too personal. If you want to just write personally, you you don't have to have a class. And I thought, no, I still want to do it right. Yeah. Well, and it's hard to do. I mean, writing the personal in a way that doesn't that 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 still reaches out to the audience and invites and and invites the audience in to participate in that poem and that speaks to people in a way that they can relate to and that speaks to their own lives um, rather than just you know just the navel gazing, uh, which of course as poets we're all we're all guilty of too. It's it can be a real challenge to to get that balance right. You need to speak from a place of open honesty, but you also need to reach out into into the the lives of your audience, and that's tricky. Talking with M. Bartley Siegel, he is the newly named UP Poet Laureate, and we're talking about uh, writing poetry, reading poetry. How do I read poetry? Because um, you know, some poetry depends almost on the writer to get the cadence correct. How do I read poetry and make sure that I'm getting the right effect from it? Well, you know, I, I think you, I think you start by picking up a poem and 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 just reading it, and and not not worrying about what it's supposed to mean or what it is it's supposed to do. I, I think one of the really magical things about a poem is its ability to to come out of my head and and through my hand and onto the page and then, and then leave my orbit and go out and, and reach some other person. And who knows what that person is going to do with it? Who knows how they'll read it? Who knows how they'll interpret it or what it will mean to them? And I, and I find that, I find that chance that you take with, with a poem to be, to be, you know, one of, one of the best things about it. I, I'm, I'm always telling my students, um, you know, just, just read it. And if you don't like it, pick up another poem. And, and if you don't like that one, you're not doing anything wrong. You just haven't found a poem or, or you haven't found a poet that speaks to you. And, and you just got to keep looking and keep reading and, and you'll find your, you'll find your poet. I think one of the things that has amazed me over the last half century, probably 75 years, I'm not quite that old, but is the various ways that we can approach poetry. I mean, for so many years, I think we all considered poems to be basically what I write. I try to get the meter right. I try to get good rhymes. Everything goes in the appropriate uh, fashion. But most poetry now seems to be more of a free-form expression of use of words. 
Billy Collins has this great line in a poem of his where he talks about the ways in which poetry is ruined for both students of poetry and readers of poetry and poets alike. And he talks about the the drive to sort of beat a beat a poem to death with a hose. <laughs> and and I've always I've always loved that because it really is, you know, you start getting into these conversations about prosody and, and, and form and, and what a poem has to be or what a poem has to mean and, and it just it just sucks all the joy and all the magic out of it. And and I think when you really dig into poetry, when you get out of that kind of hallmark um, formalism, the, the roses are red, violets are blue, you know, it's kind of stuff, sonnets and sestinas and, and all that business. And you get out into the world of, of, of contemporary poetry, it gets messy fast. And it, it, but it's messy in the way that, that we're all messy as human beings. Um, and and I, I think, you know, just to kind of privilege some of that that diversity of voice and form and content is really for me, you know, the best, the best space to be working in, in poetry. Are we doing a good enough job these days, introducing our young people to this art form? No, no, we're not. We're not doing a good enough job introducing our young people to a whole host of language and, you know, media literacy issues um, I think, you know, if we look out on the world and we look at a lot of the problems that we're having right now, in some ways they can be tied back to uh, kind of a sloppy use of language and a sloppy understanding of language. And I, I hope, you know, and I see a lot of hope in this next generation. You know, every generation that we put out is it's like the most literate generation in the history of the species and and the the generation coming up right now, these these Zoomer kids, man, they've got a handle on language like I've never I've never seen it. And and I think that speaks uh, I think that speaks to a, a to a to a space of hope that can be found in the future. And you know, I don't think we've done a great job um, educating people about poetry and about about language more broadly. But but I but I think we're moving in the right direction. That's encouraging to hear because uh, I've noticed too that uh, over the years, because uh, I, 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 I'm still distressed that English teachers in high school don't teach sentence diagramming anymore. So I, <laughs> I, I'm very old fashioned in that regard. But uh, the, the knowledge of the language and the ability to use the language, I look back at people, just common letters that people wrote a hundred years ago, they were wonderfully mm. formed. And mm-hmm. today we get uh, these little texts and things of that nature. I think we've created a society that perhaps in and of itself downplays the proper use of language a bit. Well, and I mean, a lot of that's pinned to a certain kind of perspective, too. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, look at the, I look at the letters, uh, you know, written by, by John Adams and, 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 and folks of, of that era and I think, wow, just the, the time and energy and attention that they put into that, to that art form. But I think it's easy to look out uh, right now. It's easy to look out at tweets and, and status updates and, and, and TikTok videos and downplay um, the richness of language and expression, the diversity of language and expression that's happening right now. And it might not look like the expression of, of, of yesterday, the expression that I grew up with or the expression that you grew up with, but it's just as valid and it's just as rich and it's just as, it's, it's, it's way more diverse than, than what we grew up with. And, and in that, I find, in that kind of perspective shift, again, I, I, I find a lot of hope. Matt Siegel, where can people find your poetry? Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm Googleable. That's a word, right? Yeah, well, sure. Um, it, it is now. Yeah. It All is we now. have to do is I, find I something to, to rhyme with it. I'm the, I'm the poet laureate, so I get to make up my own. Yeah. My yeah. Own that's, words. that's, a, you get, you get, a, you get on, an extra license because you're poet laureate. Yep. You can find me in all kinds of literary journals. Um, I've been publishing pretty steady for about the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. Um, I've got one book out. Um, if you if you look up my name, you'll find me. You can find me on Facebook at UP 
Poet Laureate. And you can link to my other social media from the info section there. And you can visit me online at uppoetlaureate.org. That's a work in progress, but it's coming along. And I'll have links to uh, to publications and, and things people can read and, and other information about the UP Poet Laureate program and, and all that good stuff. So if you could accomplish one thing, and we've got uh, just a few seconds left here, if you could accomplish one thing over the next couple of years, what would it be? I think what I would like to do with my two years in UP uh, as UP Poet Laureate is to just really kind of raise up UP voices, particularly the youth youth poets that are amongst us up here in the region. And and if I can if I can move that needle a little bit, I will count myself as 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 pretty pretty accomplished as UP Poet Laureate. M. Bartley Siegel, the UP's Poet Laureate. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your poetry. Thank you so much for having me. I I really enjoyed our conversation. Hopper Country Today continues in a moment. After a historic global effort, vaccines are now approved to help stop the spread of COVID-19. That includes vaccines being available in Michigan's Copper Country. While supplies are limited, healthcare providers from Lorium to Launce to Ironwood are vaccinating people in our community as quickly as possible. If you're looking for information like what vaccine is available in our community, how can you sign up to get the vaccine, and who is even eligible for the vaccine, we invite you to visit coppercountrystrong.com slash vaccine. Again, coppercountrystrong.com slash vaccine. Welcome to segment two of Copper Country Today. I'm Grant Ducetto. Our program is brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. You can learn more about them at phfgift.org. Our special guest for the second segment is Lauren Schur, and she is from International Cultural Exchange Services. So, Lauren, why don't Hi, you kind thank of... thank you uh, for having me. Why don't you kind of go over uh, not just your company, but kind of what your day-to-day responsibilities are? Absolutely. Um, So this organization actually turns 30 this year. We're about to have our big celebration pretty soon. And so the CEO, when he founded it, he had been an exchange student in the past and he'd worked with other organizations and he knew he wanted to have one that really focused on providing great support to the students and the families. So I guess that's kind of the cornerstone for us is having people who are local, who really care about their students and families and are there when they are needed. And I've been doing this, I think I'm entering my fourth year now, and I've probably worked with about 90 students in the UP in the last couple of years. So it's been really fast growth, but it's been so much fun. So let's talk about the uh, the elephant in the room when it comes to foreign exchange. How has COVID changed things? It has made things crazy. Um, maybe a month or two after that stay-home order last year, there were a lot of questions in the air of whether we were even going to have a program this year. I know there are other organizations that kind of panicked, and they sent all their kids home the second the stay-at-home orders were issued And what I really liked was that we kind of took more time to make it a discussion rather than just one person making the decision. So our host families here had a say, the natural parents in their countries had a say. And so students went home when we knew those borders were open and when their families were comfortable and things had been planned out. So that really helped a lot. Um, And I think it got us some goodwill in the public because we weren't just kids out of households. We've been very fortunate that the program continued this year, and we have almost the same amount of kids here now that I had at this time last year. And a lot of them are telling me that it's different, but it's not bad. They get to spend more time with their families. They're having more deep, meaningful relationships and conversations because they are at home and together more. There's a lot of benefits to that, too. So how long is the student typically here when they're taking part in the program? They could be here either for a semester or the school year. So we get semester students that come from August to January. We get ones that are January to June. But we also get school year students who are here for that full 10 months from end of August to beginning of June. And does your company, do you participate in sending 
students from the UP over to other countries, or is it just a one-way flow from international to America? No, we've got an outbound program as well. Um, And the requirements for an American exchange student to go abroad are the same as for our students to come here. They would have to test as proficient in the language of whatever country they go to. So we know that they would be able to communicate at their school and with a host family. But yes, it's an option. As far as the students that are coming to the UP, where are they coming from? What countries are most well represented? The most well-represented countries are pretty much always going to be Spain and Germany. It's just a part of their culture that they want to send their kids abroad. But we get students from, you know, anywhere up to 40 countries each year. It just depends who the Department of State says we're allowed to work with based on our relations, basically, for that year. So we've got kids right now coming from Colombia, from Portugal, from South Korea, Japan. I mean, really all over the place. And you mentioned that they have to prove that they're proficient in English to make their way over here. So even though Spain is one of the kind of the major um, foundations of the program, all those kids, they, they know the language. They know what they're doing. They have some idea what they're getting into coming over to America. Yes, they have to have a recommendation from their English teacher. They have to pass the English language test. Um, They have to interview with somebody at their agency to kind of prove that they've got some conversational skills. So they don't come over with perfect English, but they come over with enough that they can communicate. Now, I don't think too many people would be surprised to hear Japan and Korea in this conversation because their reputation for being world travelers is well known. But I don't think most people would associate Spain with that. So I was kind of surprised to hear you mention that particular country, that it is part of their culture where they say, hey, to be a global citizen, you got to get out in the world. You got to have that full global experience and you got to spend some time in a culture that's very different from your own. Yes, it's part of their culture, and it's also a lot of students and families know that English has become, you know, the main business language of the world. So for a lot of them, they feel it is important to have really good English for their future. And I'm assuming once they go back, you hear from them on what they liked, what they didn't like about the experience. What are kind of some of the things that you typically hear as far as what they like about coming to the Upper Peninsula in particular? I think they're always really surprised. I've had some kids who told me, you know, when I found out about my placement and where my host family was, I had to look it up. I never even heard of that place. And they see, you know, these pictures of all the snow and sometimes it's really daunting. And then by the time it's time to leave, we get kids who are saying, no, I don't want to go. I'm going to come back for college. And they surprise themselves with how much they enjoy like the the skiing and snowshoeing and ice fishing and all the cool winter activities that we have. Obviously, the UP known for its universities, whether it be Lake State on the eastern side of things or Michigan Tech here as you get towards the western UP. Does your program tend to, you know, supply a couple of students to those universities who maybe would not have participated beforehand? Yeah, um, we do get a lot of students who they come on the J-1 visa, which is the high school visa that allows them to go to a public school, but they can come back on F-1 years later and go to universities, and I've got a couple that are planning to. You kind of mentioned it, the students, they hear about a town, a small town in the Upper Peninsula. They probably have never heard of it before. They have to look it up, do some research. I'm assuming that the students who are placed in, say, New York or Los Angeles, they may not know exactly what that experience is like, but considering how much culture we export to the rest of the world, they probably have a decent idea. Here, it's essentially they're starting from scratch, and I'm guessing that that can surprise them in a good way. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, We had a student who came from Australia, and she was actually on an unusual calendar year program. So she was here starting last January, and she actually got scared at first. She did not know if she could handle coming to the UP, and she said she felt like it was going to be so small and she'd never make any friends here. And then she kind of like bit the bullet or took that leap of faith, and she came and she fought with us when it was time to go home. She didn't want to leave. And she said, you know, being at the smaller school, it was so much 
easier for her to make friends because people are friendly and they're excited to meet someone new. Whereas sometimes in those bigger cities like New York and L.A., they get more of the Hollywood version of the U.S., but they're not anything new or exciting when they show up at those schools. And I would guess it's a great way to expose students internationally to the American kind of culture that you don't see represented among the big media. And as we (laughs) seem to bifurcate a little bit, become more divided as a country, you do get a certain representation of America from from California or New York that may not, you know, be a uh, particularly accurate one for people living here in the middle of the country. Yeah, it does. It gives them a whole different viewpoint. Um, My mom actually hosts an exchange student every year, and last year they had a German student and we learned kind of about Germany that really they only have one news station where they're getting international news to them about the U.S. So they get such a really filtered view about our politics and our news and what life is like here. So living with real families and experiencing how we actually live day to day and how people have many different opinions, that's something eye-opening that they take home. And I love, I talked to one student the other day and he said, you know, the point of this for me is I can see how people here think and how people here live their lives. And I can see how, you know, my family at home thinks and how we live in Germany he goes, and when I'm ready to live on my own, I get to pick the best of both parts that are going to make me happy. I think that's a really neat sentiment. And it's not something that I would have initially kind of thought of as a benefit to a foreign exchange program. But now that you mention it, I can definitely see how it would be. The other thing I'm struck by from that example is how mature that viewpoint is. Yeah, I mean, and I know for that particular student, his name is Tim he has been really enjoying that his host family hunts. And Europeans, it's very rare to hunt. It's very expensive to hunt there. And the restrictions are very, very strict. So he would probably never have experienced before. And our students aren't allowed near guns. So he's not standing in a stand holding a gun, but he got to help like put the bait pile out and check the trail cams. And he was allowed to kind of just and observe, you know, the deer coming in. And even that for him, really a once in a lifetime experience that we take as very everyday up here. You mentioned the restriction on guns. Are there any other restrictions that the students have kind of applied to their experience? Yeah, um, they're allowed to take driver's ed, but they're not allowed to drive like with a host family or with a friend. Most of those kinds of things are just because their health insurance is not going to cover if they cause their own accident. And what is the age minimum? Is it just uh, maybe juniors and seniors in high school, or could you have somebody younger potentially be part of the program? No, we get 9th through 12th graders. They can be as young as about 14 years, 10 months when they arrive, um, all the way up to kids who are 18 and graduated at home and they're doing like a gap year before college. Now the host families, can they say, Hey, we only want, you know, maybe upperclassmen compared to those freshman type students, or is it pretty welcoming across the board? No, you really get to pick what you are looking for. So part of my job is getting to know potential families, um, what their interests are, what their activities are, things that they want to do with the student. And then we look through the applications. And if you want a boy, we're going to look at boys. If you want a boy who's going to be a junior, we look at boys in that age. If your family is really into basketball, I've got lots of students who love basketball. But I don't want to put a student who's maybe a major athlete with a family who's going to be more laid back and not into sports. So having a good fit is very important. So how comprehensive is that process? How, how long are you talking or kind of how long is the form if they're doing it written? What type of process is it to make sure that that fit is, is secure? So the first part is going to be that families do an application for us. It's a very simple online application. It's a lot like filling out a job application online. You put a little family information You do a background check because we want to make sure that families that our students come to are also safe homes for them to be in. Um, I call references, and then I would do a home interview with the family and 
get to know them a little better that way, answer questions and talk about their needs. And then we can start narrowing down what students are great. And the cool part is once the family's done a background check, we've got applications on those students that we can share that have a letter the student has written, a letter the parents have written, something one of their teachers wrote about them. There's always going to be photos in there. And some of our kids even have videos of themselves that they upload to kind of introduce and show you about their lives. As far as the families, what's the number? How many are participating in the program? And is there a wait list for it? Or do you have pretty much everybody who wants to be part of it taking part? Um, it's kind of a tricky question. It depends a lot on the schools. There are some schools that don't have any limits on how many exchange students that they're willing to take. And there are some where, you know, because of how many teachers they have or, or different requirements, only take a certain number. So depending what school you're in, there may or may not be a wait list. Usually there's not, though. Um, we get about, I, I have 17 students who are in the UP this year. I think I had 18 or 19 last year, so it's, it's very similar. And then there's other people that are working more towards the eastern side of the UP because we want to make sure we're close enough that if the student or family needs us, we can get there quickly. As far as the families who are participating in hosting students, do they do it multiple times or do you get a lot of cases where they do it once and they say, oh, that was cool and enjoyable, but it's not something I can continue to do into the future? We definitely get both. I have plenty of families who say, I want to have this experience. I'm going to do it once, see what it's like, and that's enough for me. But I also have a family right now who's on their 14th student. So as far as the, that, that's amazing. 14 is. That's pretty amazing. That's, I mean, you're talking at least over a decade. I mean, obviously that they've been doing it. You can host two at the same time. So you'd be surprised how quick they add up. So I am curious um, as far as the families who are doing this, do they tend to have kids in the school district or do you get a lot of cases where maybe they're a little bit older, maybe their kids have kind of gone off to college, you know, flood the, flood the nest, so to speak, and, and they just have that hole and they want to maybe, maybe host students. What are kind of the uh, criteria as far as what you're allowed to, um, kind of the structure that you're allowed to uh, participate in the program? Um, there really isn't a specified family structure that we have for our program. I mean, there's every kind of family out there, and that's okay. Um, we have families who are younger. Maybe the parents are late 20s, and they've got little bitty kids at home. A lot of exchange students actually love having a little brother or sister to kind of dote on, especially if they haven't before. We have families who are right in the middle, and maybe they've got a kid who's in high school who this is going to be a sibling for them. And we get empty nesters and seniors and single parents. I mean, I've had every kind of family. And do they come to you or do you come to them? How do you kind of get in touch with these families who are interested in participating? Well, right now, you are one of my ways of reaching families who are possibly interested in hosting um, I try to get a lot of referrals and word of mouth from my existing families. Some of the schools have been wonderful and helping to share my information with their families. Um, any way I can get in the ear is how I hope to find a family who's going to be good for our kids. So you mentioned kind of the different uh, program possibilities. It could be one semester. It could be a full school year. In the case of the Australian student, you mentioned it was a calendar year. Are there any other options, or are those three pretty much covering all the bases? For us, that is pretty much it. We, we mostly work with kids who are here while they're in school. And I guess a, a big question would be, if you got students coming from Spain or students coming from Germany, do they see differences in our education system compared to theirs? I mean, maybe the, the big one that I'm thinking of would be perhaps an emphasis on creative thinking compared to kind of rigid, dogmatic kind of memorization. You know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I know for a lot of students, what they love about coming here is being able to have elective classes that they choose, where at home their schedule is laid out for them kind of from day one and they don't really get to pick. 
So they like coming here. They like taking different classes. I have a student right now from the Czech Republic who just signed up for welding her second semester because she said at home there are no welding classes or woodshop classes and it's an opportunity to try something totally out of the box but they also get excited about really weird things like having a locker because some of their schools that's just not something they would have Hmm. so trade schools are a big thing in the u.s maybe compared to european and asian counterparts That particular student was telling me there's kind of two routes of schooling for them. Um, They either do what they call grammar school, which is similar to what we have where they stick with those core classes like English, science, math, and history throughout, or they can, when they go to high school, select a specific trade. And like for her, it was going to be more of an art school with digital photography and graphic design and things. So in that kind of situation, there would not be an opportunity for something like a welding or wood shop. They just don't mix everything together like we do. Exactly. So kind of what is your favorite story out of the four years you've been doing this? Maybe a student that you thought, "Mm, I don't know if they're going to if they're going to like this and they turned out to love it. You've hinted at that a little bit with the Australian student, but I think that had to do with weather, perhaps maybe more so. (laughs) <laughs> then then um, you know, the fact they wouldn't uh... she's a good example though because she found i mean and this is not everybody everybody's experience is so different but that student attended church regularly with her host family which was not something that her natural family did often and so i mean i just watched her personality change and she became such a mature young woman by the time she left versus the girl that she was when she got here. But there's always the really good funny stories too. I mean, everybody pretty much has seen the character Long Duck Dong on 16 Candles. That's like our picture of the crazy exchange student. (laughs) And there are weird things. The one that my mom is hosting this year is a boy from Spain. And he, for the first three months of his exchange, was doing the dishes with hand lotion because there was hand lotion next to the sink, and he assumed it was soap. And he just thought our soap was weird because it coated the dishes so well. So when I was going to Michigan Tech, I graduated back in 2009, I remember a story during orientation week involving kind of the cultural differences between America and maybe some of the the students who came from other countries. And one of the ones they liked to share was a French student. She was a woman. And she came to them a couple weeks into the semester and said, I don't know if they're being nice or if I should be worried because everybody said hello when they were walking by on the street. It wasn't something that happens in France. It just wasn't a cultural norm for them. You kind of, you maybe, you know, tip your cap or something like that, but you just weren't friendly and outgoing when you were out in public with strangers. Well, you know, you, Bruce, we are some of the friendliest people in the world. So I absolutely believe that story. And my students have told me some pretty similar things, that they're just always surprised at how many people just want to talk to them. You mentioned uh, basketball players in particular. Have you, have, any, have you had anyone come over from, say, Spain or Germany and, say, try out hockey? <laughs> Which is obviously a huge yeah. deal in the Upper Peninsula, but maybe not so much in their home country. Well... I mean, look at the Red Wings. Look at how many players you've got there from Czech Republic in different places. We absolutely get kids who already play hockey and come, but we get ones who want to come and try something different. We've had a lot of kids who want to come and play American football because American football is not a big thing in Europe, and they're excited to try something that's really different for them. I was going to ask about football next. (laughs) So it's already covered. Uh, As far as your program, you mentioned that this is a great way to help you get your your name out there. If somebody is interested, if there's a family out there that's listening to this and they maybe want to become part of the program, or perhaps there's a student listening to this who wants to be part of the Outbound program, how do they get a hold of you? Um, We have got the Upper Michigan ICES Facebook page. There's our website, icesusa.org, or families could email or call me directly, which is probably the easiest way to get started and ask questions since it would go to me and not a robot. (laughs) 
So you're pretty much the one doing most of the placements then? Or do you have a big staff? Um, nope, I am the one. If you're in the Western Upper Peninsula, I did actually just hire somebody new down in Bessemer. So we've got a little better coverage to the south since I've been driving out that way myself for a while. But I can definitely direct families, even if they're from slightly out of the area, to someone who's going to be closest for them, too. And then are you from the area originally, Lauren? I grew up in um, the Lower Peninsula, but I've been here in the Copper Country for just about nine years now. Gotcha. My dad grew up in Wakefield, so not too far from Bessemer, but I grew up near Metro okay. Detroit. So yeah. I guess we have similar tracks there. I love it up here. A little I, bit. I'm not going to yeah. lie. <laughs> My I can see why your students are very happy. <laughs> No, I mean, you kind of get hooked. My husband came up for tech to become an engineer, and he told me if I wanted to continue dating him, I better be ready to move up and stay. So here I am. <laughs> so, Lauren, we're almost at that 25-minute mark. The segment's almost done. Anything you want to add to uh, what we've talked about or maybe cover something I haven't asked about? Is it okay if I give my contact information? Absolutely. Awesome. So families can reach me by email. It's L S. C-H-E-R-R at I-C-E-S-U-S-A.org. Or you can call me on my regular 906 number, and I text you, and it's 906-231-4852. Lauren, thank you very much for joining me on Copper Country today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Portage Health Foundation recognizes the important role that recreational facilities play in our community's ability to live an active, healthy lifestyle and an overall contribution to the quality of life for our citizens. Developing and maintaining recreational facilities requires significant financial and operational commitments, which is why we have our community recreational facilities and resources request for proposals. We have $120,000 available to improve recreational opportunities in the Copper Country. The deadline to apply is March 22nd. Learn more at phfgive.org grants. I hope you enjoyed this morning's Copper Country Today. Thanks again to our guests, the UP's new Poet Laureate, M. Bartley Siegel from Michigan Tech, and Lauren Schur from International Cultural Exchange Services. If you have a topic you think we should cover, email your suggestion to kreport at up.net. I'm Todd Van Dyke. Copper Country Today is brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. Learn more about them and their mission at phfgive.org. And remember, the Portage Health Foundation is making lots of scholarships available for colleges and technical training, some for high school students and others for non-traditional adult students. If you're interested, visit phfgive.org. The application deadline is March 19th. This is a copyrighted public affairs production of Houghton Community Broadcasting.